In this recording, we're going to go through some of the major conceptual debates between Rab Chaim and the Chazon Ish in the issues of Tomas Mace, when someone is in the same room as a dead body. Now, because Rab Chaim had a very long section on these halachas, and the Chazon Ish was a very careful reader of this Sefer, so there's many comments the Chazon Ish has on the various pieces where he questions this point, or he offers a simpler solution, or he wonders how this would fit in with a different view or a different place in the Gemara. So there's a lot of details that the Chazonish questions or disagrees something that Rab Chaim says. And obviously these are very important comments because the Chazonish is the highest profile reader of Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi that we have extensive comments from. So many of these debates are very important and the Chazonish raises some very central issues. Now mostly in the recordings going through the pieces in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi I haven't gone through the Chazonish's comments for a few reasons. First of all, a lot of them are very technical, so it would be difficult to include them in the recording. In addition, many of the Chazon Isha's comments would disrupt the flow of Reb Chaim's analysis, so they would be more confusing than helpful. And finally, some of Reb Chaim's pieces are very intricate and in-depth. They're like a beautiful tapestry that at the end of the whole thing, the whole thing is unveiled, and it's this beautiful puzzle that comes together. So to include another perspective would break the flow of that process. So throughout the recordings on the individual pieces, we haven't included many of the Chazon Isha's critiques, and we're not going to do so in this recording either, because to go through the detailed comments would be very complicated, and I don't think the benefit would outweigh the difficulty. But instead, in this recording, we're going to look at some of the broader conceptual debates that the Chazon Ish has with Reb Chaim. So throughout the Chazon Isha's comments, we can see some of the major themes with which he disagrees with Reb Chaim, and Likewise, throughout Rab Chaim's pieces, there's certain major themes that reappear. So these conceptual debates are much broader and they're not limited to one detail or even one piece, but instead they're themes that run through many of the pieces in Chidusha Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi and the Chazon Ish has a different fundamental perspective on the whole issue. So one of the most central themes that Rab Chaim repeats over and over again throughout these pieces is that according to Rab Chaim, there is a conflict between Tumah Ritsutza and Tumas Ohel. Again, Tumah Ritsutza means that the Tumah goes up and down, all the way up and all the way down to the pits of the earth. And Tumas Ohel means that the Tumah spreads throughout the roof under which it is. So it goes throughout the whole room. So according to Rab Chaim, because these two Tumahs work so differently, so they're in total opposition to each other. And actually, even more fundamentally, the concept of Tumarit Sutza, according to Rab Chaim's interpretation of the Rambam, means the absence of Tumas Ohel. So the whole halacha of Tumarit Sutza doesn't have a positive definition, meaning under the following factors, there's Tumarit Sutza, but rather it's only defined in the absence. If there's no Tumas Ohel, so then the dead body has Tumarit That's how Rab Chaim understands the Rambam's view. And this is based primarily on two major comments in the Rambam. The first is in the Rambam, Tomas Meis Zayin Hei, which is the first halacha that Rab Chaim begins all the pieces with. This is a major principle in Tomas Meis, says the Rambam. 
anything which would have had Tumas Ohel, so it would have spread throughout the room, Im if instead it's Ritsutsa, which means that it's confined, so it does not have a Tefach airspace. In other words, there's no Ohel. So then the Tumah goes all the way up to the heavens, all the way down to the pits of the earth, but it does not go to the sides. So the Rambam seems to frame the whole concept of Tumaritsutsa as the absence of Tumas Ohel, meaning if there would be Tumas Ohel, so then it stops the Tumaritsutsa from taking effect. And the Rambam seems to repeat this in Tes Zayin Vav. The Rambam says, Any Tumah which is not under an airspace of a Tefach by a Tefach, so there's no covering, there's no Ohel over this Tumah, becomes Tumaritsutsa. So it sounds like a body lying in open air would be considered Tumaritsutsa. Now the Raivit on this Halacha in Perak Zayin disagrees. He says, This is a broken way that the Rambam formulated this. Rather, says the Raivit, Nothing stops the Tumah or spreads the Tumah unless there's an Ohel of a Tefach. So unless there's a covering on the body, the rules of Ohel don't apply. But that doesn't automatically make it tefach. We only say that there's Tumaritsutsa when there's an exact Tefach airspace on top of it. So the Raivit understands that Tumaritsutsa means literally that it's confined Tuma. There's a covering of less than a Tefach airspace. But without that, it doesn't become Tumaritsutsa. So if there's a body lying in open air, that's not Tumaritsutsa. Even though there is a rule of Ohel on top of it. So someone that hovers over a dead body in open air is Tameh because they're in Ohel over the dead body, but that's different than Tumaritsutsa, which goes all the way up and all the way down. So that added component that it goes all the way down does not apply to a body in open air. So the Ravid's framework is that if there's an Ohel with a full Tefach of airspace above the dead body, that's considered an Ohel. If it's an exact Tefach of airspace, including the area of the body, so there's no Tefach of empty airspace, that's called Ritsutsa, which means confined Tumah, and then the Tumah goes all the way up and down. And if the body is in the open air, so then some Someone hovering above the body becomes Tameh through the regular rules of Ohel, but it's not called Tumaritsutsa. So again, this seems to reinforce that according to the Rambam, Tumaritsutsa means anytime there's the absence of an Ohel. So a dead body automatically has Tumaritsutsa unless there's an Ohel which stops the Tumaritsutsa and instead spreads the Tuma throughout the room. Whereas according to the Raivid, that's not necessarily the case. There's Tumas Ohel, which has certain criteria that there be more than a tefach of empty airspace. And then there's Tumaritsutsa, which also has certain criteria that there be an exact tefach of airspace, including the area of the body. And then there's another type of tuma, which is that anyone that hovers over a dead body is also tame because they become an ohel on that body. So that seems to be the setup. And Rab Chaim makes a big deal about this, that according to the Rambam, Tumaritsutsa is the absence of Tumas Ohel. Now these comments of the Rambam and the Raivid also play out in their description of Tumas Keber. So according to Rab Chaim, Tumas Keber is like a third form of Tuma. It's not exactly Ritsutsa and it's not exactly Ohel, but it borrows some of the details from both of them and it puts them together.
together. And there's a debate between the Rambam and the Raivid what exactly the details of Tumas Kever are. And the way Rab Chaim explains it in the first piece, according to the Rambam, Tumas Kever also stops the Tumaritsutsa, just like Ohel blocks the Tumaritsutsa. So that's why a Kever requires an empty Tefach airspace. But once the Kever becomes a Kever, so now the Tumaritsutsa returns. Whereas according to the Raivid, Tumas Kever is based on the Tumaritsutsa, so it doesn't conflict with Tumaritsutsa, which also fits in because according to the Raivid, Ohel and Ritsutsa have less of a conflict. So the Ritsutsa plays into the Tumas Kever and it also creates Tumas Ohel. But even the Raivid who holds that Tumaritsutsa doesn't just mean that there's no Tumas Ohel, even he agrees that the two Tumas are in conflict, so there cannot be Tumaritsutsa when the body is being used for Tumas Ohel. So this is the basic framework that Rab Chaim sets up. And basically, there's these different ways of transferring Tumah from the body, and they're in conflict with each other. So in each case, we have to figure out which of the Tumas is going to take effect. Now, the Chazon Ish does not like this overall idea that the Tumas are in competition with each other, and one of them wins out. He sees this differently, that each of the Tumas has its own factors. And when those factors are are present, so then the Tuma occurs. Now it happens to be that Tumas Ohel and Tumaritsutsa have a contradictory factor because an Ohel requires a Tefach airspace and Ritsutsa requires less than a Tefach airspace. So it is true that there's a mutually independent factor which makes it that Tumaritsutsa is going to be when there's no Tumas Ohel. But it's not that the two Tumas interact and since there's Ohel, there's no Ritsutsa and if there's no Ohel, there is Ritsutsa but rather depending on the factors, there's either Ohel or Ritsutsa, but those are independent issues. So in his comments on the piece in Zion Dalid, the Chazon Ish questions what Rab Chaim said, that if there's Tumar Ritsutsa, it cuts into the Tumas Ohel, and the Chazon Ish says it can't be, because the issue of Ohel is independent if there's a Tefach airspace, so then it becomes an Ohel. Otherwise, if there's less, it becomes Tumaritsutsa. But it can't be that the Tumaritsutsa is going to affect the Tumas Ohel. And this that the Gemara said, Tumaritsutsa Bokas, that since there's Tumaritsutsa, there's no Ohel, Hainu Kivan She'en Kan Ohel Mimela Bokas. It means since there's no Ohel, because there's less than a Tefach airspace, so therefore there's going to be Ritsutsa. Ula Olam Reishis Hanidonim Yesh Kan Ohel Vim En Kan Ohel Shav Ladin Tumaritsutsa. The first Thing that we have to evaluate is, is there an Ohel or not? If there's an Ohel, so then there's no such thing as Tumaritsutsa cutting into that. You can't call something Tumaritsutsa before you've evaluated if there's a Tefach airspace. So according to the Chazon Ish, this idea that Tumaritsutsa may cut into Tumas Ohel can't happen because Tumas Ohel depends on whether there's an Ohel of Tefach, and that's it. And the Chazon Ish in a few comments also points out that Rabbi Yossi's position in the Gemara in Chulin Kufchaf Hayamud Beis is that there's no such thing as Tumaritsutsa to begin with. So according to Rab Chaim's view that Tumaritsutsa is part of a whole complicated network together with Tumas Ohel and they play off of each other, so Rab Yossi should have to change a lot of these halachas, but it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like he just argues on one detail. So we see that there isn't some network where the Tumas interact with each other. Each Tumas is evaluated on its own, and even if Rab Yossi doesn't hold 
hold of Tumar the other halachas remain the same. So this is one of the major points that the Chazonish disagrees with Rab Chaim's whole framework of Hilchus Tumas Meis. Now, in the Chazon Isha's comments to the piece in Yud Bey's Aleph, so again, he repeats this basic idea that the Tumas don't play off of each other. Each is evaluated on its own. But then he adds a second piece to his disagreement with Rab Chaim. And he suggests that the debate between the Rambam and the Raivid, whether a body in open air is considered Tumaritsutsa, so this is a very fundamental debate. According to the Rambam, if there's no covering at all, it's still Tumaritsutsa. Whereas according to the Raivid, in order to be Ritsutsa, it needs to be in a confined small space. And Rab Chaim makes a big deal about this throughout the pieces. He keeps revisiting this, and he believes that it's a debate between Rab Zera and Rava in the Gemara, and the Rambam rules like Rava. So this is a very big issue for Rab Chaim. The Chazon Ish argues that the whole issue between the Rambam and the Raivid is just semantics. So the Raivid is not disagreeing with the Rambam practically. He also agrees that a body in open space the Tumah goes up and down, the same halacha as Tumah Ritzutza. He just doesn't want it called Ritzutza, which means confined. It means that it's in a small space and this body is in the open air. So the Ravid would prefer a different word be used, but he agrees practically with the same halacha as the Rambam. So this obviously collapses one of the key distinctions between the Rambam and the Ravid, because here we have the Ravid agreeing that any Tumah that's not Tumas Ohel is Tumah Ritzutza. So that's the way the Chazon Ish understands this debate in his comments on the piece in Yud Bey's Aleph, and he repeats this approach in his comments on the first piece of Yud Tes Aleph. So that's the way the Chazon Ish suggests understanding the debate between the Rambam and the Raivid, not about halacha, but about the language that the Rambam used. Now, even though it's true that the Raivid was a jack of all trades, so he has all sorts of different comments on the Rambam. Sometimes he disagrees with him, sometimes he explains the Rambam, sometimes he goes on a tangent and he explains an earlier source in the Mishnah, the Tosefta, or the Gemara related to the Halacha in the Rambam. So there's all sorts of different types of comments in the Raivid, including that sometimes he does talk about the language of the Rambam. Such as, for example, in Hilchus Yom Tov, Perek Vav, Halacha Beis, there is a debate between the Rambam and the Raivid over the word Eruv Tavshilin, why it's called an Eruv. So there are semantic issues, and likewise the Chazon Ish understands that the Raivid here is questioning the language of the Rambam of Ritsutsa. Now that said, the weight of the commentators is with Rab Chaim on this. In the Sefer Tam Vidas and Hilchus Tumas Meis, Perak Zayin Halacha Hey, he quotes that the Achronim agree with Rab Chaim's reading, including the Kesef Mishnah, the Merkevisa Mishnah, the Tiferes Yisrael, the Rashash, and even interestingly, the Chazon Ish himself in Sefer Chazon Ish also interprets this like Rab Chaim. So it's only the Chazon Ish in his marginal comments to Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi that's suggesting that it's a semantic issue, but the Chazon Ish himself in Sefer Chazon Ish also understands that it's a more practical halachic debate. Now the Chazon Ish in his comment on the piece in Yud Tes Aleph raises another very important issue here, and it's not totally clear even within Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi what he believes about this. So the Chazon Ish is touching on a very central 
central issue. And that is, what is the difference between tumaritsutsa and someone hovering over a body? So we just said that if there's a body in open air, according to the Raivit, it's not tumaritsutsa. But of course, anyone that hovers over that body is tame because of ohel. So what is the difference between those two? So on a practical level, tumaritsutsa goes all the way up and down, whereas the ohel only affects people directly above or below the body, but not if they're in the earth below the body. So that's a simple distinction. But Rab Chaim seems to imply in some places that those are two different forms of Tuma. There's Ritsutsa and then there's Ohel. So someone being on top of a body is considered Ohel and not Ritsutsa. Now the Chazon Ish disagrees with this and he says that they're the same form of Tuma. Anything above a body becomes Tameh, even though they might have some details that are different. But the way of transferring Tuma is equal in both those cases. So there's no major conceptual distinction between Ritsutsa versus someone that's in Ohel over a body. Now, even in Chidush Rabbein Chaim Alevi, it's less than clear how he views the difference between these two. And it could be it's more a language, a semantic distinction, more than it's a fundamental distinction between how they transfer Tumah. There's even some discussion people have within Rab Chaim, and this is now getting very detailed, that maybe there's a distinction between Bokas Ola Bokas Vioredes, Tumah going up and down versus Ritsutsa. But now this is way above my pay grade. Someone would have to go through the pieces in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi very carefully to clarify what exactly Rab Chaim thinks on all these issues. And there are many good Sfarim that do exactly that kind of work. So that's another one of the Chazon Isha's points about Rab Chaim's framework, whereas Rab Chaim seems to be splitting hairs and dividing Tumar Ritsutsa and Ohel and all sorts of secondary types of Tumah. The Chazon Ish sees them as more interconnected, that basically a dead body gives off Tumah, and there's different ways of that Tumah leaving, but it's not clear how fundamental the differences between all of them are. So that's another element of this debate. Now there's a line that the Chazon Ish has in his critique of the third piece in Yud Tes Aleph, which makes me think that there may be something philosophical going on here between Rab Chaim and the Chazon Ish. Because one of the odd things about Rab Chaim's framework and his whole understanding of Tomas Mace is that he treats it very much like a scientific concept, almost like we would think of germs, that you can trace the travel of the germs. So let's say there was a room with a fan on in it versus a hot stifling room, a scientist could maybe measure how the germs are going to travel throughout those different spaces. So likewise, Rab Chaim really seems to think of Tomas Mace in similar terms. We can trace the principles of the Rambam and the Raivid, how they view the travel path of the Tumah. So there are certain halachic principles which determine the direction that the Tumah is going to travel in. And the Rambam and the Raivid both chart out in different ways how the Tumah is going to travel in different scenarios. So that seems to be Rab Chaim's operating principle that we can use logic and sort of figure out, given the halachic principles, in which ways the Tumahs are going to interact with each other, how they're going to travel, what the map of the Tumah's travel is going to be. The Chazon Ish seems to disagree with that and think that you can't apply the rules of logic or a scientific model to explaining how Tumah travels because it's a halacha. That's the rules that the Torah said. And there's a limit to how much logic is going to be able to explain this. And this is an overall debate between Rab Chaim and the Chazon Ish. This goes to the heart of their different methodologies. According to Rab Chaim, the halacha can be understood in logical terms. So it's our job to figure out from the halacha what the logic 
guiding it is. Whereas according to the Chazon Ish, the Halacha just says what to do. Obviously, there's logical principles at work, but there's not these grand logical narratives that can be used to trace the various details of the Halacha. So this is another instance of this overall debate between these two giants. They each have their own perspective on how to learn, how to understand Halacha, and this is another instance of this very important and central debate. So the line that the Chazon Ish writes is Ela Hagdaras Shem Tolui Besvaras Kachamim Al Piruach Kadshem Eze Ohel Mishtava Im Nogeya. That the rules of Tuma and how they interact and how they're classified are determined by Chazal using Ruach Hakodesh, this special divine inspiration that they have. So the Chazon Ish seems to be objecting to the idea that logic can explain the nature of Tuma, but rather these rules are formulated by Chazal using Ruach HaKodesh, they come through divine inspiration, but they don't come about through logic. So that's another element to the whole debate between the Chazon Ish and Rab Chaim over this issue, and that's perhaps the philosophical underpinnings of how they each see the issue of Tumah in a spiritual sense, and how that leads to different understandings of the halachic principles involved. Now there seems to be another broad debate between Rab Chaim and the Chazon Ish, and this is a more technical issue. It doesn't have to do specifically with Tumah, but more about the methodology of interpreting the Rambam. So one of the things that Rab Chaim does throughout these pieces is very often he'll explain the Rambam in the Mishnah Torah differently than the Rambam in the commentary on the Mishnah. The Rambam wrote two major halachic books. The most significant was the Mishnah Torah, which is where he ruled on every issue of halacha spanning the entire Torah. But earlier, the Rambam had written the commentary on the Mishnah, which was a running commentary on all the Mishnayos. So obviously there are halachas that are discussed in both of these books, and the Rambam comments on them two different times, and sometimes he contradicts himself. So that's a situation that does come up. One of the things that Rab Chaim does throughout these halachas is that he seems to interpret the Mishnayos based on the Rambam's rulings in the Mishnah Torah, and very often he doesn't refer to the Rambam's own commentary on the Mishnah. So he'll sort of recreate a commentary on the Mishnah based on the Rambam's halachas in the Mishnah Torah. Specifically in the pieces in Hilchus Tumas Meis on chapter 19, so Rab Chaim has four pieces explaining how the Rambam and the Ravid interpret the Mishnayos in Oalos chapter 9, which deal with the case of a kaveras, a barrel. And Rab Chaim basically recreates like a running commentary on those Mishnayos based on the comments of the Rambam and the Ravid in the Mishnah Torah. But in certain details, Details, Reb Chaim's reconstructed commentary of the Mishnah differs from the Rambam's own commentary on the Mishnah. Now, all of this is even more pronounced when it comes to Elchus Tumas Meis because most of the halachas in the Rambam have not only Mishnayos but also Gemara. So the Gemara already has a commentary on the Mishnayos, and the Rambam's rulings are based not only on the Mishnah but the Gemara as well. Hilchos Tumas Meis, which is based on Maseches Oalos, there's only Mishnah, but there's no Gemara. So the Rambam's commentary on the Mishnah plays an outsized role. And again, Rab Chaim ignores it more often than not in explaining the halachas in the Mishnah Torah. And the Chazon Ish seems to have a critique of that because a few times the Chazon Ish references that what Rab Chaim's saying contradicts the Rambam's commentary on the Mishnah. So one of these comments of the Chazon Ish we mentioned in the recording itself, both on the first piece in Yudtes Aleph, as well as the second piece in Yudtes Aleph, the Chazon Ish points out that an aspect of 
Rab Chaim's analysis contradicts the Rambam himself. So Rab Chaim says that the word Michul Cheles in the Mishnah, it says that the barrel it's talking about is Michul Cheles, and Rab Chaim explains that that means it has holes in it. Now that is one of the approaches of the commentators, and it's a popular one as well, but the Rambam himself in his commentary on the Mishnah says that Michul Cheles means that it's smooth, it's empty inside, but there's no holes in the vessel. So basically, Rab Chaim is explaining a halacha in the Mishnah Torah based on an interpretation which the Rambam in his commentary on the Mishnah explicitly argues against. So the Chazonish raises this issue. So Rab Chaim may have felt that since his logical analysis of the halacha in the Mishnah Torah is indicating that that interpretation of Michul Cheles is going to work better, so we can assume that the Rambam changed his mind from his commentary on the Mishnah to his later halacha in Mishnah Torah. The other option is that maybe Rab Chaim felt you can interpret the Mishnah Torah independent of what the Rambam himself as a historical figure, how he understood the Mishnah. But either way, the Chazon Ish points this out, that Rab Chaim's interpretation is going against what the Rambam himself explicitly wrote. Then there's another example of this, which is less clear in the Rambam's commentary on the Mishnah, even though the Chazon Ish thinks that Rab Chaim's analysis is contradicting it. But again, the Rambam is less clear on this point. In the piece on chapter 18, talking about the slope of a tent, so one of the issues is that the Rambam differentiates between the outside side of the tent and the inside side of the tent. So that's one of his distinctions. But he only makes that distinction about the bottom part of the tent where it's sloping, not the actual inside of the tent where there's just a lot of empty space inside. The Rambam never mentions that there's a distinction between the outside and the inside of the fabric of the tent in the middle part of the tent, which is not sloping. So Rab Chaim analyzes this whole halacha and he suggests that the Rambam is telling us this distinction on the slope of the tent, but it means as well for the entirety of the tent, even the middle part of the tent. Because once we see that the sloping area of the tent has the same halachas as the middle part of the tent, so we understand that the distinction between the outside and the inside of the tent itself applies not only to the sloping part, but to the middle part as well. So this is very fundamental to Rab Chaim's whole analysis that the difference between the outside and the inside part of the tent, that the outside has a much lower level of Tumah, applies throughout the entirety of the tent. Now the Chazon Ish questions this and he quotes that from the Rambam's commentary on the Mishnah, it does not sound like that. It sounds like this distinction only applies to the sloping area of the tent, not to the middle of the tent. Because the way the Rambam interprets the Mishnah, and this is quoted by the Kesef Mishnah, the whole distinction in the Mishnah between the outside and inside part of the tent is only talking about the case of the Mishnah of the slope of the tent. So the whole distinction only applies to the sloping part, not to the middle part of the tent. So the Chazon Ish argues that based on the Rambam's own commentary of the Mishnah, what Rab Chaim saying that the sloping part and the middle part are the same does not sound right, as well as the fact that the Rambam in the Mishnah Torah clearly identifies the whole distinction only in the sloping part, not in the middle part. And then the Chazonish has another comment where he says, why would the Rambam as well as the Mishnah make this important distinction in one small case and not on the fundamental case that we're discussing? That's not the way to present material, to make important distinctions in one detail of the case and not in the broader case that's being discussed. So the Chazon Ish argues based on the presentation of the Rambam in the Mishnah Torah as well as his commentary on the Mishnah that the whole distinction 
distinction between the inside and outside parts of the tent does only apply to the sloping part. It does not apply to the middle main part of the tent. And that in fact, in that part of the tent, the outside of the tent has the same status as the inside. There is no distinction. So there's a very clear practical distinction between Rab Chaim and the Chazon Ish on this issue. According to Rab Chaim, if someone touches the outside of a tent, the middle part of that tent, so they're only Tameh for one day, they have a lower form of Tumah. According to the Chazon Ish, even though that's true of the sloping part, but if someone touches the outside of the tent, the middle part of it, so then they're Tameh for seven days. So there's a practical distinction between them. But again, the way the Chazonish formulates his argument is based on how the Rambam interprets the Mishnah in the commentary on the Mishnah. Now again, Rab Chaim could argue that the same way he's saying in the Rambam that the distinction was made on the slope of the tent, he doesn't argue in which case the distinction was made. He's just saying that it equally applies to the middle of the tent. So he could argue the same thing, presumably, for the Rambam's commentary on the Mishnah, that it's true the Mishnah made the distinction with regards to the slope, but it also applies to the middle as well. Now, the Chazon Isha's question that this is a funny way to present information, it's not a clear way of formulating a distinction, still remains, but that's a little bit of a different issue. So whether this is another instance where Ab Chaim's explanation of the Mishnah Torah contradicts the Rambam's Pirusha Mishnayis is a little bit up in the air. But it's not even clear to me if Rab Chaim would be bothered by this whole line of criticism to begin with because he himself, at the beginning of his pieces on Perak Yotes, where he's beginning to discuss the case of Kaveres, so he quotes that the Kesef Mishnah quotes from the Rambam's Pirusha Mishnayis, that the case of a Kaveres where the barrel itself doesn't become Tameh is referring to Bain Bimida, where it's a large barrel that holds 40 saw, so it's more of an Ohel, it's not considered a vessel, it's considered a tent, so therefore it doesn't become Tameh. So the Kesef Mishnah himself quotes from the Rambam's Pirusha Mishnayis how to understand this case in the Mishnah, and then Rab Chaim explicitly disagrees with that because he points out that it doesn't fit into the Rambam's formulation of the Halacha later on. So then Rab Chaim goes on to explain it differently based on another approach of the Vilna Gaon and other commentators. So here Rab Chaim is very clear that he does not believe these Halachas in the Rambam should be interpreted based on the Rambam's Pirusha Mishnah because he thinks it's clear in the Mishnah Torah, the way the Rambam formulates these halachas, that he obviously has a different interpretation of that Mishnah, different from how he explained it earlier in the Pirsha Mishnayis. So that could be Rab Chaim's guiding principle throughout these pieces, that the Rambam himself indicates that he changed at least some of the interpretations that he recorded in his earlier work. But the other view that these halachas should be interpreted based on the Pirsha Mishnayis, so that does seem to be the view of the Kesef Mishnah, because he does use the Rambam's Pirsha Mishnayis to explain these halachas, as well as that seems to be the view of the Chazon Ish. And the lingering issue is, how would the Chazon Ish answer Rab Chaim's argument that it seems clear from the Rambam's presentation in Perak Yudtes that he backtracked on a very important part of his commentary to the Mishnah about Kaveris?